Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hello, this is Dan Connolly from sunny London, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Dan's an actor. He's a good one, I reckon, as well. I've never seen him act, but I reckon he's really good. And uh, he's he particularly good in Back to the Future, which we've just been discussing, Catherine. Do you remember Back to the Future? Just before your time. Yes, I don't remember when it came out. I, but I, yes, I was going to, I was going to say uh, that uh, if you're thinking that man sounds a little bit like uh, Alistair Cook, it's because I believe, and I learned this at our live show last year, that Dan Connolly is the voice of Alistair Cook's autobiography. Is he? Yes. Is he? Oh. Yes. And he looks a bit like him. Yes. Well, I mean, okay, let's not go too far. He's not an impersonator. <laughs> <laughs> he, I don't, I don't think he's available for hire. Uh, well, I think... Uh, well, he, I don't know. It, it, in Maybe his own field, he is. He is. Yeah. Um, but he's great he's a great guy and he backs us yes so thank you Dan we think the world of him yeah go on Dan and yes I have uh, seen right. Back to the Future and it's great yeah it was came out a year after you were born I think right the first film I ever went to see on my own when I was you know with my mates bunking off school ah oh. the lost the law days. years yeah yeah, it's brilliant. Anyway, should we talk about tennis? Because that's what we're here for. We're not to the we're not the Back to the Future podcast, although that's not a bad idea. Um, what's happened at the O2 today? Catherine's been presenting live television for about twelve hours, and we've had some pretty underwhelming contests for singles tennis matches. Mainly because the the two blokes who won them were were really good. I think, particularly in the first match. I mean, Djokovic was just sublime wasn't he after the first game or two um but yeah what were your what were your thoughts watching what you saw today in the stadium Catherine inside the O2 arena it was uh Djokovic against uh Diego Schwartzman wasn't it yes it it was one of those matches that had you been a a ticket holder you'd have you'd have probably been a bit annoyed if that was the the session and and the the, the singles match that you ended up with, unless you're a really big Djokovic fan or just sort of got a, got a kick out of seeing the world number one. It was even even when Diego Schwartzman went to a breakup <laughs> in the opening game of the match, it it somehow still didn't feel like he had much of a chance. And I hope I hope Diego Schwartzman fans don't take that the wrong way. But sort of the second that Djokovic break broke back, which he did straight away it felt like the nails were in the coffin. I was actually a bit bit su- surprised by how little of a challenge Schwartzman mounted today. He was a bit more nervous than I thought he was going to be. There was a touch more of the Rublevs about him than I thought. I thought his greater experience would sort of help him not feel the nerves. Um, but yeah, it was it was total domination how, from Djokovic. How did he get that break of serve then? Where, where did that break of serve come from? Early on. Matt, you were watching. What do you reckon? I was. I think Djokovic made quite a lot of errors. Mm. I think he might have hit two double faults in that game. Um, 
I must say, I managed to just about resist the temptation to tweet, oh, what have we here when Schwartzman broke? <laughs> <laughs> because I was thinking, if I write that, the next tweet I write will probably be in about 30 seconds, Djokovic has broken back. So I sort of saved my fingers and didn't didn't type anything. And it was the correct decision because, as Catherine said, after that initial break that Schwartzman got, it was just such an uphill struggle for him to hold serve that's that's his big problem against especially Djokovic he you know he doesn't have a big serve every single game he comes under pressure to hold serve against someone like Djokovic with the quality of his return and Djokovic is going to create so many chances against him and the way he was playing today hitting the ball cleanly moving well He's too good for Diego Schwartzman. It's it's a matchup problem, I think. Uh, it's the worst possible start. I mean, Schwartzman said it himself. He did not want Djokovic in his group. <laughs> it's the worst possible match he could have got first. He he'd have had a much better shot, I think, playing Nadal if he was in Nadal's group, just because of the matchup. I he's now zero and six, I think, against mm. Djokovic, and he's pushed him once to five sets at the French Open, but. Bit of a strange match, I think that one. Um, generally, it's it's just it just doesn't match up well for him. Mm. It's um, yeah, we've all got freezing cold takes in the back of our mind, haven't we? Whenever mm. we line up one of those tweets, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I've been burnt by that so many times over the years. I'm thinking back to uh, Sloane Stevens against Simona Halep when I started yes. to just laud the performance of Stevens as up there with one of the all time great grand slam finals when she was a set and a breakup and then it started to turn um anyway wife well, brought that up um yes so uh, i i feel your pain um but yeah Djokovic just i don't want to i don't want to say he was jittery but he was just he just wasn't really feeling the ball was he at the start probably and moving quite the way he was once he just got comfortable but once once he was comfortable i mean he, I've noticed something with him now that because of his use of the drop shot and drop shot lob combos and things like that, he has his own way of almost looking like he's able to toy with an opponent. Uh, his understanding of his own game is is right up there, I think, with anybody in the world and probably anybody that's played the game. Yeah, it it did look like that to me. He looked like he was doing that thing that he and other really, really top players do in the opening round of slams when they're really feeling it and they know they've got their man and they start to kind of experiment and almost treat it as a rehearsal for future matches um, when they'll need to raise their level. And you don't often see that at this tournament because every match you're playing is against a, a fellow top eight player. But as Matt said, as good as Schwartzman is because of that matchup, it kind of did have a feel of one of those matches certainly for the latter set and a half today um Djokovic kind of found the perfect balance of trying things mixing it up doing the drop shot but not overdoing the drop shot like we we perhaps saw him do at the French Open and he and he sort of has had a tendency to do over the years it was just even his smash was working today Mm -hmm. I mean his drop shot wasn't working he tried. Was it not? You know, he tried several of them, and they most of them went in the net. I felt, and they, <laughs> but it didn't matter because he was just so in control, so assured of himself. And I agree with the general point that when he's comfortable, he's got he has got shots in his locker that he can deploy, and he opens his shoulders and gets more expansive. I actually really enjoy watching Djokovic when he plays like that. And as you said, look, it's it's not a competitive match. It felt. It felt a little bit like the O2 experience has been for four or five years. I would say I don't want to be some kind of ATP Finals Grinch, but I've I've been a little bit down on the overall experience of this tournament for a few years. I think last year was an exception, but it does feel like you spend a lot of time waiting for matches to happen, and then you're disappointed by the matches when they happen. But if you can appreciate sort of perfect world class tennis you would have enjoyed what you saw from Djokovic, I think, today. When uh, David put out a tweet at, at the start of the tournament uh, a couple of days ago from the podcast account, uh, appealing for people's opinions about what the worst ever 
uh, ATP Finals match at the O2 Arena has been Matt responded. Matt mood. responded uh, with his submission within a, a sort of less than a second, as if you'd just been sat. Uh, by your laptop or on your phone waiting for someone to ask that question so that you could vent, Matt, about the 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 minutes, hours, whatever of your life that you'd wasted. It was <laughs> a paired tweet from Matt in his drafts yeah. that he's kept yeah. ever someone since. Someone ask me about the worst tennis match <laughs> I've ever watched at this damn tournament and I will blooming tell you. <laughs> yes, because about ten it, minutes earlier, David had tweeted, "What's your best match?" and I ignored that one. <laughs> yeah, because I suddenly realised, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a way better response if I go for worst match. <laughs> Tell us then, Matt. Tell us what match it is. Well, it was Anderson Nishikori, obviously, at the <laughs> at the 2018 ATP Finals. I mean, just awful. Just the lowest quality tennis I've ever seen. That I I give you there was there was a Nishikori there ever. was a Nishikori mm. team at that same finals. Yeah, and which... there was a Nishikori Federer as well, <laughs> oh, which dear. was dire. <laughs> I did get to a point where I started to feel quite bad that the people it was almost just like picky a Nishikori <laughs> match. <laughs> Matt um, I mean, you know, he's a cracking he's a cracking player who can play some wonderful matches, but my God, has he been involved in some stinkers <laughs> over the years at this Matt tournament? Matt remembers all of them. Mm. I, I, honestly, I sat through them all at that 2018 <laughs> ATP Finals. And I think I think one of the things is because at this tournament, I mean, we were all here, weren't we, two years ago at that event? And and I think because you know Nishikuri's got the ability, you can find yourself hyping mm. a match that he's involved in because of his ball striking ability and his speed across the ground. And you can, you can think, yeah, but I remember the Novak Djokovic 2014 semi-final at the US Open. He can do it. This could be, this could be amazing. Were we hyping Nishikori matches at the 2018 ATP finals? I can't c- categorically say that we weren't because I don't remember, but I've, I've, f- I've definitely <laughs> had my moments. Um, <laughs> uh, but that probably says more about me. Um, how did we get onto this? Worst, Just worst me matches. being miserable. You're right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Djokovic uh, was was emphatic, victorious today. Actually, came off the court and said something quite interesting about the Australian Open. And I didn't know whether it was a bit of one of his, like when he came off the French Open court and said that I'm, I don't think I'm going to play the grass. And then went and won Wimbledon <laughs> a few <laughs> weeks later. But on this occasion, he said that I. I'm not sure if I'm going to play the build-up stuff towards the Australian Open, whatever that is, because is is the is the idea that he's not that keen to go in December and do the the quarantine quite that early? Is that is that what he was saying? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, he spoke quite in depth about how he's been having conversations with Craig Tiley and Andre Saar, I think he said, who now works for Tennis mm. Australia, and that they've been in quite close communications about the Australian swing at the start of next year. And he uh, said again what we referenced on the podcast yesterday or maybe even on our preview show about how uh, the plan is to have multiple events in Melbourne. He said that he that was his understanding as well, but he just doesn't think personally at the moment that he would fancy going over for the two-week quarantine to play the events leading up to the Australian Open because that would mean he'd have to... Well, it sounded like he w- wouldn't be taking his family with him, perhaps, and he, he wanted to stay with them at home. Um, I think from an Australian Open point of view, if there's a person in the field who I think could arrive at Melbourne Park and hit the ground running at the Australian Open and not be too affected by not playing warm-up matches, it probably is Novak Djokovic, given his record there so I'm, I'm sure he's I'm sure that that part of that thinking is the Australian Open he's not going to do something that he thinks jeopardizes his chances there either thinking about it apart from last year when he played the ATP Cup and he clearly really wanted to win that aside from being ready for the Australian Open he was fuming about that Davis Cup finals wasn't he and he wanted to have that experience that team country experience and he had it and he won he won the thing and he, he loved it he was very emotional about it all. But if you think about everywhere else he's 
prepared for the Australian Open. It's tended to be Doha, hasn't mm. it? He's not not really done the Australian summer in quite that way. So, and I mean, look, I can, I can really understand not wanting to be in Australia for that level, that period of time, that amount of time, if you have a family and if you just don't fancy it. And, and he must believe as well like you say what is it he won eight titles mm. now at the australian open i mean how can you not back yourself under those circumstances so it'd be very interesting to see how that one um, unfolds and, and he's quite often i know it's a slightly different scenario but he's quite often gone in to wimbledon having not played any kind of warm-up tournament on the grass and he's not really been affected by that i know he's got matches in his legs because of the clay court season but he just strikes me as someone who can adapt to the conditions and the surface and the tournament pretty quickly, especially yeah. in the first couple of rounds where he's got five sets, he's got lower-ranked opponents. There's lots of things in his favour, I think. It's going to be interesting, and I'm going to end up hyping this right now, <laughs> him, him against Medvedev, because they're the two winners in the group. But it is a match that I really fancy seeing in a couple of... It's two nights' time, isn't it? It's the night match on Wednesday, and... Medvedev has suddenly hit form. He looks like the player that was going deep at the US Open. Yeah, yeah, and it it, it maybe he is going to be a, a a sort of a streak player, um, and uh, you know, like we saw him do sort of in the the late summer, autumn of last season. It certainly feels like. He is, yeah, on an absolute tear, Daniil Medvedev. And mm. as much as he hasn't said it explicitly or isn't prepared to say it explicitly, he says, oh, I'm just here to sort of try and win tennis matches. It it really feels to me like he is out to prove a point, given how he performed yeah. here last year. He wants to prove absolutely that he belongs um, that he's not a flash in the pan. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He wants to prove that he can metronomically win titles <laughs> the way David Law predicted that he would be doing. <laughs> um, it, it, interesting that you you called it streaky, and I also I do feel like he's one of those players that can look unbeatable in a given stretch. Not unbeatable, but irresistible at times very difficult to beat he looks like he would take so much doing to beat him and then other times like in the clay court season you wonder how he wins matches at all I mean I I, I remember when he when he played was it Fuchevich he ended up losing to at the at the French Open I think and and he's hitting the ball as hard as he possibly could and I'm thinking how do you win tennis I mean, matches he, the ball he doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. really on clay I mean, he, no. he really has not won many clay court tennis matches in his career. Mm. So, yeah, yeah that, something to work on. To, today he played Alexander Zverev um, in the repeat of the Paris final. And the first five games, great line coming out from Tim Henman I, that I've never seen two players indoors look so tired after five games. And they'd played for 40 minutes at that point and it was 3-2. Mm. Um, but by that time, we'd already had six double faults from Zverev, um, who's, well, that serve was dodgy again, wasn't it, today? Um, played okay, but I, I don't really think there was ever a moment that I didn't think Medvedev would win. Yeah, I think dodgy might be generous. I thought, I thought it was. Is it really? I, I thought his serve was a disaster. I mean, especially at the start of the match, he, he, he got a break. He went up 30 love and then he missed seven serves in a row. Three double faults. Did he? Then mm. missed his first serve and then lost the point on, on the second serve. Um, yeah, it was, it was all, the, all the same things we've said and seen before with Alexander Zverev and his serve. Um, it, it does feel like Medvedev, Team, Nadal and Djokovic have all been a cut above as much as I've been a little bit miserable in the first half of this podcast. I do think we've got a group of players there who are now all going to play each other. You were talking about potentially hyping that match. We've got an interesting tournament now because there's four players Oh, not there. potentially. I am hyping Okay. <laughs> we've got an interesting tournament now with those four players because they all look to be in really good form, I think. And 
obviously two of them are guaranteed to lose their next match as well because they're playing each other. So that's kind of where I don't generally like round robin, but that is where it does become interesting, whether that will bring anyone else into this tournament. But at the moment, to me, it looks like those four players have established established themselves as playing just the best tennis in this tournament. Sitsipas maybe a close fifth, and then Zverev... Uh, Rublev and Schwartzman quite quite distant behind them, but yeah, I was I was impressed with with Medvedev today. Really looked like he'd carried on uh, the form that he found in Paris. His his post match mm. interview was very very interesting. Um, I thought, I, and it struck me that he's maybe found that. I mean, okay, it's different. He's not he's not got the crowds to kind of react to and be the bad guy with, which is what we saw. Obviously, at the U.S. Open last year, when were well on a personal level enchanted by, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. It, seeing some sort of interviews that he's been doing recently, I think and hope that he is striking a bit of a balance between getting his quirky self across and maybe, for the sake of his tennis, smoothing out some of the the rougher edges of his personality. Um, so that we're left with a little bit more than the metro- the memories and the metronomic winning of titles. Um, yeah, and he- we definitely don't want corporate Medvedev. We do not no. want corporate Medvedev wearing a turtleneck with um, CGI tennis balls around him on the cover of what magazine was it? Can't remember. Hasn't he got like a six-year deal with his clothing sponsor now or something? Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's fine. He needs, sort of to, wear, he needs to wear clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I quite enjoyed a, a tweet that came in from Anne Real on Twitter who said, Bless him. Medvedev always looks like some form of permanently exhausted pigeon. <laughs> yeah, he does a bit, doesn't he? I, he, <laughs> he always looks like he has a comb over, even though he has a full head of hair. I don't. I can't explain it, but he does. Mm. There's something a bit I sort of 1920s about him. Why yeah. We are 21 minutes into this podcast. And we haven't talked about his underarm serve. Oh, yeah, oh that was a delight, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Do you know why? It's because it's off the page. I need to just scroll okay. a little bit. Oh, here we are. Um, and Medvedev actually said after it, – so it came um, midway through the second Four, set, three. I think. Right. 4330 all. So, so he's, he's hit a, an underarm serve. Zverev's lurched forward and reached it, got into the net, and eventually hit one of the world's awful volleys uh, wide uh, to lose the point. And Medvedev said afterwards, he said, I didn't want to disrespect him, so I did it at 30 all, not 40 love, which I find I find absolutely fascinating. You know, so basically he's saying, it's not disrespectful because I used it as a specific tactic because my normal wide serve wasn't working. He's way at the back, so I won the point. I wasn't taking the mick out of him. I just just used it, and it was smart. Yep. I loved it, and I loved his explanation of it. It was uh, my, my running order uh, in the Amazon studio said, Gen- general chat and analysis about the match first, um, and I disregarded that. And just went straight into a deep dive <laughs> on the underarm serve, <laughs> um, because because th- that w- what Medvedev said and volunteered there about you know how he would never have done it on on forty love that that fascinated me and I wanted to get into that debate about or if it even is a debate anymore about an underarm serve being disrespectful. Because it was only in Indian Wells last year when I was on site there with with Danny and Greg when Daniela was was pretty adamant that an underarm serve is not okay, is disrespectful. And Greg was kind of on the fence about it. Thought, maybe an extremist, you know, it should be considered. Well, things have changed. Things have changed big time. Greg, I'll tell you, he, he thinks it would have been absolutely fine at 40 love he thinks Medvedev should uh, adjust his adjust his policy um and Daniela has really really come around to it in fact Greg said I said oh but you you know I joked with him I said you wouldn't have needed to underarm serve Greg not with not with your 
serve as a weapon. He said, I, I wish I, I wish I had. He said there were absolutely times. He said it's it's not about how good your serve is. It's about the returner and where they're standing and putting the doubt in their mind and making them question things. He said it's not about your serve and that being a a, a weapon. It's it's about tactics. And that was fascinating. I think it's time to remove the question of disrespect from the table of discussion. It's a new it's a new era. It's a new climate. <laughs> yeah, and I thought Greg said the perfect thing when he said that what's good about the way Medvedev does it is he uses it as a surprise tactic because he's he's smart. He's not just throwing them in just for the sake of throwing in an underarm serve. That to me is the absolute key because I think if you consistently play underarm serves you'll find that most players will actually get up to it start anticipating it and just hit it for a winner i think if you do it too often it's actually a really bad tactic but if you get it at the right time it can be a brilliant tactic and i i love that medvedev thinks that way because Mm. it kind of plays in to what i think is special about him in that he's got this rigidity in a way in his game his ground strokes they're so solid but he's got this flexibility in his mind and his tactical approach and he's able to adapt we've seen that in different ways we've seen that when he started hitting two first serves we saw that in the US Open final last year when he changed tactics to come back at Nadal and throwing in little underarm serves is just another element of that and I think he's a smart player and that's that's why I think he'll have a very strong career just just because he's he's able to think and make decisions on the court and also not be afraid to make them, not just go into his shell and kind of do what he can do most easily. That's a, that's a really strong part of his game, I think. And I think the way he used the underarm serve today just, just emphasised that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. I referenced the terrible volley of uh, Alexander Zverev um, uh, that, that ended up losing him that point, and and it seemed to to spur a a debate uh, in the Amazon Prime Video commentary between Tim Hemmen and Nick Lester about who's the best volleyer uh, on the tour today, and Tim Hemmen was. <laughs> about the present day volleying abilities of, of tennis players and harking back to his days when everybody was significantly better. Now, uh, last night, Catherine, you, 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 you gave us uh, both a hard time having a conversation on our own personal WhatsApps, me and Matt. Uh, 
today you came off um commentary or or broadcast to 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 a bit of a, a bit of a row oh no i'd been following between... it throughout yeah Matt every and time I every were time i threw to a vt i was checking my phone it was getting a bit tense <laughs> I actually now know matt what it's like to be matt roberts standing his ground <laughs> yeah uh, I felt observing awful. from the sidelines <laughs> i tell you what matt you can pipe down in future about i blooming loved it <laughs> it was great observing so, but, so, ba- it, so basically uh tim hemman had said the, these are the things he said he, he was asked by nick lester which which who is the best present day volleyer and uh and the the name of nadal came came up and um, who's somebody who's developed a decent volleying game and people talk about him having a good touch at the net and that sort of thing. Hemman said, I wouldn't mind coming in behind that forehand. <laughs> um, and then he said, Dan Evans, he volleys okay. And then he said, Roger Federer, volleys okay. But he's not a natural volleyer. It doesn't move naturally at the net. I think that's what he said, isn't it, Matt? To which you took great exception. <laughs> Well, I mainly took exception at, at Federer is an okay volleyer. I mean, I thought that was, well, wrong, to be honest. I mean, that okay would not be the adjective I would use to describe Roger Federer's it, volleys. All relative, though. He was using the examples of Edberg and Rafter, people who've grown up and serving and volleying, and that is their tactic. That is what they do to opponents, whereas Federer is that good that he's able to develop it, but... He had to actually learn it mid-career, which is a, which is a great credit to him. But I watched him serve and volley for for a few years, first and second serve at Wimbledon in his early years, and he was not very good at it. Yeah, but Henman wasn't talking about then. He said he said Federer is an is an okay volleyer, or Federer's volley. He but used the present to- tense. And relative to his era, and he, he named a year, didn't he, about 25 years ago, and he listed the players that were in the top 20 back then. And I would say that the players he listed are better volleyers than Roger Matt Federer. Matt just sort of adjusted himself in his seat like he was preparing for <laughs> battle. I'm genuinely uh, have half I'm an excited and tense. This is great. <laughs> No, it's it's just that I'm I'm in a different chair than that I'm usually in when I record because I'm I'm downstairs in my house trying not to wake up my parents and this is not as comfortable as a chair as I normally have. Um, so he can't raise his voice, folks. Mm. This is the situation, and my kids are asleep, so I can't really either. So we better. <laughs> I mean, I've watched Federer. I've watched the clips of Federer winning Wimbledon in two thousand and three. And he oh is my God, Matt, has, Matt had to, he was going to say I watched Federer winning Wimbledon in 2003 and then he had to correct himself because he was about three in 2003. <laughs> I've watched the clips. I've been on YouTube. Yes. I've, I've seen it. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Yeah, but carry on, carry on being young. Second serves there. He, he was, he was serving volleying pretty much every first serve in that final against Philippoussis. And a lot of second serves. Yeah. And I think I take the general point that compared to a Pat Rafter, for example, Federer doesn't have that ingrained in his game. But he doesn't he doesn't need to. But he doesn't have it ingrained in his game the same way the serve volleys of that era had. I, I, I understand that and they probably understand how to cover the net perhaps better than Federer. But I think that's all they do. But I think Federer's actual volleys are way better than OK. <laughs> and I think there was probably a period in his career where they weren't so good. And he, he perhaps had to relearn how to play at the net a little bit more when, I mean, it was kind of the trope that people trotted out when Stefan Edberg came in. He's going to teach Federer how to volley again. But I, I think there probably was a little bit in that. There was there was development in that part of Federer's game when Edberg came in. I think Federer got so used to being able to beat players from the back of the court while he was dominating that his volleys probably did suffer a little bit. But the actual technique and the ability to hit a volley, Federer's brilliant at. I mean, just just go on YouTube and watch all these compilations of Federer hitting volleys and 
come back to me then. You know, you, you can't say his volleys are okay. Yeah, but, but, but my football team hires a, a, a rubbish striker and on YouTube in the compilation, he looks amazing. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm just saying, who, uh, you can make a lot of things look Roger amazing. Federer to you right now, David? <laughs> no, my, point is, my, <laughs> my point is that you can, you can sure. make people look incredible sure. in a montage. But, but I've, also, I could give you a, I've also a single watched a lot Stephen of Federer Edberg matches match. with my own eyes. Yeah, but I could give you an, a single Stefan Edberg match where Roger Federer's entire volleying career is not as good as okay, but a single Stefan Edberg match. Just because Federer's not as good a volley as Stefan Edberg doesn't mean his volleys are okay. Well, as I said in the, in the exchange, it's relative, isn't it? What? Everything's relative. But, but okay as an absolute... Yes, Federer's not okay relative to anything. Mm. If you're taking tennis as a whole, there's no way that the that the okay line is drawn at Federer. <laughs> yeah, but Tim Henman is drawing the line based on his personal experience of having played some of the all-time great seven volleyers. So he can deem it okay. Well, I disagree. I've made my case. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favourite podcast we've ever done. <laughs> Matt and I have never had words before. This is. I know. I, I really like didn't watching, like it. It's like I a, felt uncomfortable. It's like a coming of age film. It's like watching Stand by <laughs> Me it, of the tennis podcast. Because uh, Matt, Matt, Matt's so so well observed with with, with all of his tennis knowledge, uh, and, and I respect it enormously. Um, but then my nineties self mm, comes kicked back. in, didn't it? And can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> and gets confrontational. <laughs> but, uh, but, anyway. but hang on, but I think there's... I, I'm not sure you're disagreeing as strongly as you think you are, David. Do you, do you agree with Tim Henman that relatively or absolutely Federer, Federer, Federer's volleys are okay? Relative to that era that he's talking about, I mean, I don't think he's he's at that their level. I don't. No, um, it's absolutely not the question I asked. I didn't say no, is I, he I, I, when, not when, as good a volleyer as Stefan Edberg was. I said when, when relative said that, to he anyone. Was taking the, when Henman said that, he was taking the mick mostly. I mean, because he was. Oh, great! So this um, argument's been for nothing. But but, <laughs> but at the same joke. time. There are lots of people that would say, no, Roger Federer is the best volleyer who ever lived. You know, there are lots of people who would say Matt's that because saying they're that, Federer yeah, devotees. I don't know. Nobody's having that. a debate on the basis of idiots. That I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, can, you can deal with the word okay as and, and describe it and value it as whatever you want, depending on, on where, you, where you are, can't you? Right, okay, but, so what's the point in ever talking about anything? Well, my my point is... <laughs> this is more like an argument the, between <laughs> you two. <laughs> now, we, now we know you where we are. You started it. No, Tim Henman started you need it. To, Matt needs to break this up now. Um, I just... I just, I suppose I'm, I am quite protective of, of that era, and I think that it gets dismissed because of how great Roger Federer is and how great all of these guys are, but particularly Federer, because he's so talented... There is a tendency, and I'm not, I'm so not good accusing at Matt of doing this, but that I feel like you, you're not giving enough respect to the era of the true servant volleyer of players who literally made their careers based on that specific ability. Is it, is it dismissing that era to say Roger Federer is a really good volleyer and Stefan Edberg was better? Well, I'm quite sure that that's what Tim Hemmer would say if he's not messing about. <laughs> but, but I also think there's a point that their whole game was focused on that, you know, because yeah, I oh, think if, sure. if Federer was playing as a servant volleyer, he'd be even better as a volleyer. So it's kind of difficult to compare yeah. and judge. His, all all, all we know talent. is Federer's volleys yeah. that we've I seen mean, well, throughout his career, and, and they've been better than OK. Quite, it was quite it was quite interesting watching the evolution of of Federer 
having been around at the time and, and seen because he's capable of doing everything to a high level, it was trying to work out, well, what should I do in order to mm. be the best that I can be? And he he used to say, well, when you go to Wimbledon, you serve and volley. That's just what you do, isn't it? That's what they all did. I should do that. And he was getting absolutely carved up. He got beaten by Kafelnikov in the first round of straight sets. He got beaten by, I think, Yuri Novak in the first round of Wimbledon. And then he beat Sampras, and then he got carved up by Tim Henman uh, in the uh, in the quarterfinals in 2001. But when he won that 2003 Wimbledon, it was very much a combination. I mean, yes, he did serve and volley, but it wasn't what he was doing previous to that, which was not spending a single rally at the back of the court. Um, and... And that's how good he was. He was able to do it in different ways. And 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 when he won Wimbledon in 2007, in that interview I did with him, he said, I would love to try and win it, serving a volley in first and second serves all the time. I'd love to have a go at that, see if I could do it. Because people don't do that anymore. And don't forget that um, Tennis Relived show we did with Paul Anacone, where Pete Sampras was grilling Roger Federer at dinner about why people don't come in seven volley anymore, you know. It's, it's and and I'm sh- look. I'm I'm like a, a rubbish. I can't play tennis. Yet I've got that same mentality as Sampras of this being almost, I suppose, protective of an era. Um, of and it's yeah, it's nostalgia driven. So would you concede that you're potentially sort of overcompensating because of that protectiveness? Yes. 39 minutes we've been talking. Federer's not even in this tournament. (laughs) (laughs) Federer's not playing. Tim Hemman didn't know that he'd uh, caused caused a hornet's nest. He'll be hearing about it tomorrow. (laughs) And you'll you'll ask him and he'll go, I was only only (laughs) messing around. This is is when we get mad that people spend ages coming at us for things we've said jokingly on the podcast yeah, yeah. we've just done God. 20 minutes we've, we've just turned into twitter <laughs> oh, live God. on the podcast uh can i draw your attention by the way to a an intro from simon briggs in the newspaper uh this morning actually talking about the atmosphere in uh in in the o2 and and he he wrote the zombie finals began on Sunday at the O2 Arena. Over the coming week, players and officials will go through the usual motions, but with no one there to watch, it is a husk of a tournament, a body without a soul. It's better than that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great intro, though. It is a great intro. Um, uh, look, it, it, it is more affected than other tournaments I have seen by the lack of crowds, for sure. I've said that. I said that yesterday. I I do find myself wanting... I, no, what, not wanting. I do find myself subconsciously actually watching on the monitor rather than, as I mostly did last year, turning around and watching live tennis. I think it looks better on TV with no crowds than it feels in reality. Um, mm. I'm less aware of it on TV and I'm sure... Can you hear the um, Can you hear the air conditioning unit <laughs> that everybody keeps talking about? No, but I can feel it because it's absolutely bloody freezing. Right. Yeah. I've got um, the toasty socks on under the desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't look good with the outfits. <laughs> This is why you listen to the <laughs> podcast. You wouldn't know about um, all that, would you? I didn't even know that. Yeah, I tell you what, it looks really great when you're when you're wandering around in your in your semi posh dress with a visor on that's covered in cake because you accidentally you tried to eat cake with your visor on. You forgot that you were wearing a visor and you just <laughs> shoveled it into the plastic. So you try you try you try to find the loo because to to clean the cake off your visor and you're wandering around in toasty socks it's all it's all glamour tv um at least there's nobody there yeah, to see say, thank goodness yeah, there's exactly. no one there yeah. it's liberating um fortunately we've got photographic evidence of the cake um yeah i, I do that's going up tomorrow 
it is it can it w- the best experience for me so far has been um, Sits a Pass team. That had some real intensity and competition to it. And I, I I did enjoy watching periods of that. Today, those singles matches, given the sort of the, the lack of intensity in them, they were they were quite a tough watch. They were quite mm-hmm. a tough watch there in the stadium. They were. I do, I, yeah, I think it, as you've laid out, it it has promise in terms of those four players being informed, I, th- I think there could be some really intense battles that will that will yeah. ignite it a bit. But for sure, it's you know there's a lot of truth in in what Simon said there. Mm. I mean, there were a, a tough watch I found on the telly today as well. Uh, you've got you know no crowds plus round robin matches plus one-sided matches all creating a kind of perfect storm of just not a particularly engaging day unfortunately of tennis but i think it's also possible that there's a general little bit of fatigue just of this stretch of tennis we've been on you know i know i know that seems like a um counterintuitive thing to say considering we've been denied so much tennis this year i'm I'm very aware of that as well, and I'm grateful to have the tennis that we do have. But a lot of energy, I think, went into getting the tour back up and running and having back-to-back Grand Slams and following that as as fans, as journalists. That require a lot of energy, and I think the players are feeling a little bit fatigued. Teams talked about that. Maybe sport was so meaningful when it came back it doesn't quite have that sense now because we've just had so much of it in such a short space of time. Uh, perhaps I'm just kind of speculating, trying to think maybe why I'm slightly less engaged in it than I normally am. And um, these are all theories. I don't know, but it's just a sense I have that perhaps, perhaps people are just a little bit fatigued and almost just waiting for the season to end. So we can maybe start again in, in January kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I think it's a- still jarring to people, really. I th- it's still hard to accept, really, that you're watching tennis that doesn't feel like it normally does, mm. um, and particularly indoors. It's, it, it, it is. But I do feel like we've there's potential this mm. week for some yeah. barnstormers. I mean, we, we, Team um, Nadal tomorrow. Hope Hopes are high. Is it, oh, is that tomorrow? Afternoon. Ooh, yeah. Great. Tomorrow yeah. afternoon, yeah. Oh, that's that's excellent. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, just just a quick word. I'll, I'll tell you the order of play in a minute. Um, match of the day today was the doubles between Mate Pavic and Bruno Suarez and Jurgen Meltzer and Eduard Roger Vassalan, which was three sets, ten four in the third set tiebreak. And I, I watched quite a lot of that and just was mesmerised by some of the shot making in it. Really, f- just. I can't believe what some of these doubles players can do. You know, the, the speed of the reactions and the improvisation and the the dexterity that they have to make things happen. Yeah, Jürgen really Meltzer can that. play still. Yeah, despite being I mean, 108. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I heard uh, that he was he's going to um, retire next year. Well, mm. Didn't he retire like a decade ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was singles. Right. Uh, but yeah, apparently he's going to jack it all in next okay. year. Um, uh, there was anyway, in that match there was a thirty-nine-year-old, well. a thirty-eight-year-old, a thirty-six-year-old, and then a sprightly young Mate Pavic at twenty-seven. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Um, and then the other the other match was Marcel Granoyes and Horacio Zabayas beating John Piers and Michael Venus seven six seven five. So that leaves tomorrow with Kevin Kravitz and Andreas Mies uh, of Germany up against Lucas Kubot and Marcelo Mello. That's from 12 UK time. Then that Nadal team match. Who's going to win that? Matt. (laughs) Team. I'm going Nadal. What you got, Catherine? Mm. Nadal? Okay, that's that done. Uh, then at, uh, not before six, Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury against Wesley Kuhlhoff and Nikola Mektic. And then it is evening session, Sitsipas against Rublev. That's a good one too. What you got? Sitsipas. 
Oh, Matt's having a big think about this one. Isn't it? I am having a think. It's 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 what you said yesterday with Sitsipas's ability to recover. He was he was hit, I think, by that loss. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I, I I will just say Sitsipas, David. Yeah, I'll go Sitsipas as well. Uh, we got any shout outs? Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> shout out to Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Cheers, hey, Nathan. Nathan. Uh, Desmond. Oh, hello, Desmond. Cheers, Des. Great name. And and to Manuel Abdallah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's a cracking yeah. name. Manuel, thank you so much for your hello, support. Uh, in our Kickstarter at the start of uh, this year, which feels like an awfully long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's the reason that we're able to keep this going. Uh, we're into, into the 130s of tennis podcasts for the year, and we ain't stopping now. We're going to be with you every single night of uh, the ATP finals here. Um, I say here, I'm just sat in my little room in the in Solihull. Uh, Catherine's at the O2. Uh, she's going to be back presenting live TV tomorrow. She was she was bloody good today. It's got to be said. Um, and uh, yeah, she's blushing now, which is excellent. <laughs> and she's on her third beer, which is quite an achievement uh, for for half past midnight. Um, uh, so she's going to go and have some sleep. Uh, present some live TV again tomorrow. Good night, Catherine. Good night, David. Good night, Matt. Good night, David. See everybody. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye. 